I like the difficulty adjustment for like it being a way to keep everyone on time. So keeps the blocks roughly around 10 minutes, um, which is important for coordination of a distributed network or, you know, and so you have different participants that could get in sync with another and be not know who each other was because it's just like, I like to think of it as like a meat grinder. So like, you know, every 10 minutes it has to be on sync and then it's on time. And that's when you get like final settlement every 10 minutes. Hey everybody, this is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about Bitcoin, life, and the absurdity of the fiat world. Our guests don't necessarily get high with us, and you don't have to either. But it help. What's up, Dan? How are you, man? All right, I'm recording. Here we go. Today, we have... Thank you, dude. Yes. Today we have uh, <laughs> Dr. Sammy the Bull Callahan. Who is, you may know him from, uh, the, he's a lead analyst at Swan, and he's also the new host of Swan Signal Live. That's right. Which uh, that was the first, first episode aired today. You're not going to hear this for a few weeks, but uh, yeah. February 1st, the first Swan Signal Live. How'd it go? Uh, it was good, man. I was with Lynn and Parker, and they're both some of my favorite writers and educators in the space. So it was a privilege, man. It was an honor. It was fun. Uh, I was nervous, <laughs> but you know, I did a lot of research and I don't know. I was just having a conversation really. Cause I just, I understand where they come from because I've, I've literally read everything they put out over the last like four or five years. So it's like a weird relationship where I feel like I know them. <laughs> right, right, right. How, uh, how often I should know this the answer to this question. How often does that air? How often do you, are you planning to start well, doing this? It used to go every two weeks and now we're doing it weekly. Oh, nice. Is that, uh, got any, feel any pressure from that? Like that's a big, uh, you know, you, you do good work, but doing the public facing weekly conversations, well, it's not, right? it is a little definitely, man. I mean, cause it's kind of against my nature a little bit. Like I'm more of like, uh, I don't know. I like to be, reading research and stuff and right, right. articles, you know? Uh, but it's kind of fun too. Like I like having conversations with interesting people and learning from them. And um, if I could help, you know, make pe other people understand things more easily, that's the goal. Right. So it's a, you know, I just do my best and I hope people enjoy it. Well, part of being a good researcher is knowing the right information to look for, the right questions to ask. So I guess if you think about it as part of your research journey, uh, you can you can probably get a lot uh, of value for your listeners by kind of kind yeah. of walking them through your process, that journey. Yeah, and writing, you know, writing is just an amazing thing. It's it's kind of a bitch. <laughs> it's not easy, but you know, it's an amazing thing because you can't bullshit. Like you have to kind of understand the subject that you're writing about. So it, it is, it's cool though. Cause you gotta, you know, I learn things and I really have to learn them so that I can explain them in a way that other people can make sense. So writing is, I think it's a huge proof of work process. Don't you think? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's an, it's, it's, just, you know, I'm still, it doesn't really get that much easier. You just keep grinding at it. Um, writing is mostly, like editing, you know, you, you put things down and then you, it's more like taking a scalpel to it and you just go back on it, back on it, back on it, find a better word, 
take out a sentence, you know, and then you refine it over time. But there is a creative process too. You got to like get a bunch of ideas, like just taking a bunch of ideas, like be a sponge, kind of mix and match and see what kind of makes sense to you. And then uh, throw it on a page and then refine it. So, so that's kind of how I roll. How's that relationship between the the writing and the researching? Are you research, like, are you reading a lot of shit? Like what attracts you to researching so much? Like you said, you, you were heavy into it. Yeah, no, it's more, uh, it's more like just curiosity and then following curiosities and then just trying to get knowledge. Like I, I enjoy just reading a lot and that's, that's the game. I mean, to be honest with you, it's just like, you got to read every, you got to try to read a lot. Maybe that's me being like a rookie, but I, I, I think reading is like really important uh, and knowing who to read is equally important on specific subjects. You know, there's too much to understand. And so you just got to understand who knows uh, the most about that specific niche in the market and, and build that trust over time by looking at their track record. So, you know, I know who's been kind of spot on over the last four or five years and so that helps, you know, and then it's just that Twitter's amazing and the internet's amazing. So you can learn anything you want from anybody, uh, but you got to know where to go. And that's kind of part of the game too. It would be, um, it'd be nice if other researchers kind of approach this the way that you do, especially guys, uh, you know, prominent institutions like DigiEconomist, where you're actually learning something and actually <laughs> getting factual information before you, you do your writing and publish your research, right? Yeah, Ditch Economist, I, I do not like that guy, to be honest with you. Only because uh, like it's this weird thing where you, you know all these institutions and, and governments, I don't know why. Like that's that's their go-to. And that's what makes it like annoying, is because it's actually used against Bitcoin and legislation and and spreads misinformation. It's always Ditch Economist. Right. And you just look at the references of anything, and and there's been multiple threads on this, and a lot of people have written on it too. Uh, like the guy from BitFarms put out a lot of good pieces, uh, kind of tearing it apart, just like, cause it just literally doesn't make sense. Um, it's not like connected to any kind of reality, that model that they reference. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of me off. I guess the incentives of some of these like international institutions, NGOs and stuff, it's not necessarily to have good information that is valuable to people to read it, to learn from it. But if you, you know, don't have that giant institutional backing with uh, an agenda behind it. You have to come up with something legitimate. But um, if, you know, you do a lot of research, you do a lot of writing, but you are, like I mentioned, and I didn't know this when I first met you, you are a doctor. You are a physical therapist. Is that correct? Yeah, I had a doctorate in physical therapy. That's so wait, so wait, how wait, did you... Wait, wait, wait no, yes. How did you... You, do you have a doctorate in physical therapy? In physical correct. therapy? I was a sports physical therapist, a sports specialist. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, Continue. Sorry. You wow. ever con well, did you ever consider teaming up with uh, Dr. Jeff to have a podcast where you guys talk about macro? You can like the <laughs> macro well, he's a radiologist, uh, which is helpful no, in, in my, you call it, you call MDs, macro doctors. Oh, macro doctors. <laughs> I don't know, man. I never like, I don't know every like healthcare profession has like a doctor degree now. And like, yeah. I, I think it only serves to confuse the patient uh, because no matter if you want to call it a medical doctor or a physician, which is like the technical term, like nobody calls them that they think a doctor, they think of like a family physician or, or yeah, yeah, of course. And so like, I never, I never, I was like, just call me Sam. 
And so, it, you know, I don't know. I earned it though, but it's kind of like, no, yeah, yeah. Use patience. Well, the, the, the question, or I ask that, or I bring it up just because, uh, how I'm wondering how you went from, you know, a physical therapist, you went, you got a doctorate in physical therapy. How did you transition from wanting to pursue that to becoming a researcher and a writer and a podcast host? And by the way, you did do, there was an acting background, wasn't there? Well, that was like a, a side hustle during the bear. Okay. Market. Okay. Okay. Not, not to derail it, but yes. Yeah. All right. I just want to yeah. point that out. That was the like, sex hats. I, it's, it was fun. It was a good time. Okay. I did that on the side because I, yeah, you know, we'll PT, share, Tancer Dan, like. We'll share your OnlyFans a link at the end so you can look and see it. <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, like PT, I don't know. Like, so all my family's healthcare professionals, like it's like, mm-hmm. and, and I, I always found it like a, an interesting job because, because I liked anatomy since I was a kid and physiology. Um, and so I just like studied that a lot and then put that on your Tinder profile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did. Dude, I had like operation as a Dan, kid. Dan, you're feeling yeah. greasy tonight, bro. You're feeling greasy. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Yeah, no, I was, I don't, I studied, uh, I liked investing and I liked uh, markets around, I don't know, high school or something like that. I started reading stuff like that. And then um, I went into like business school at Indiana and that was 2008. So literally the global financial crisis. You went to business. Okay. Okay. So uh, that so was, you're in the you're the global financial crisis is happening and you are in business school, freshman year, yeah, freshman year, freshman year. So every so I, okay, okay. I, yeah. I, w- I was an economics student, not in 2008, but 2009, 2010. Yeah, yeah, yeah. S- similar. And so I my dad's like, it's like kind of a gold bug, and he's super smart guy, he's an investor himself, and he just like he was pissed off during that time too. He was just like those bankers, man, (laughs) like those bankers got bailed out. And like, I wanted to understand why my dad was so pissed off at these bankers. (laughs) So then I started reading his books and, um, and, and then, so I studied central banking basically around that time too. Mm -hmm. And I was like studying central banking, never came across Bitcoin. That would have been awesome, but I didn't, I, I just, whatever. And, um, and so, so you, I got totally, I didn't want to go into business school. I didn't want to work in finance. <coughs> I didn't want to be a part of that fucking ah, gotcha. industry. And then I was like, you know what? I've like, I like biology, I like science. So then I switched majors sophomore year and just did biology, studied a lot of physics and chemistry. Um, wow. And then I went into PT school because I wanted to work in sports because I was, I'm, I like liked sports at the time. Definitely like Chicago sports and I wanted to like get a ring with like a team and, and help these athletes and shit. And that was the goal. And that's, yeah, that's, and then I went there. Interesting. Uh, so not to spend too much time on my story, but yeah, in school economics during the financial crisis that I was the gold bug. Uh, and then, <laughs> then I switched to tech, uh, or learning software and kind of going back to my skills there. And I wanted to work for a professional's team in the kind of like 
the production room, like running some, like not being like a producer or uh, somebody using the equipment, but somebody that's like setting it up and like keeping it running and maintenancing it. Like I wanted to work in one of those, you know, IT operations there, like for a professional cool. sports team behind the scenes. Yeah. So, yeah. I get that. I get that. I don't like Chicago teams, but uh, other than that, I, I can, uh, yeah. A both. Yeah. A relate. I can relate. Um, so, all right, you get this and then somewhere along the line, you got orange pilled. I take it. And things changed. Oh, dude, just like, yeah. Flipped everything <laughs> because I don't know. I just, I just became completely enthralled with it. Like just, what year was this? This was, uh, 2017. Like, okay. Okay. All right. That's when I really fell down the rabbit hole. Um, but I had like studied central banking and crises and stuff. Right. Like that, and so I you were ripe felt, for this. Yeah. No, I just like immediately once I, once I like looked past number go up, um, which didn't take long to be honest with you. Cause when I found out about Satoshi, it just like blew my mind basically Satoshi, mm -hmm. like nobody knew who he was and all that, the mystery behind it. I was like, this can't be real. And then it just got crazier <laughs> the farther I went down. And then I just kept reading like everything I could get my hands on. There's great podcasts like uh, Tales from the Crypt, like early on was like important for me. Uh, Preston's podcast is great. Um, yeah, man. Peter's podcast back in the day was great. Like still is. Um, and so, you know, so yeah, man, all those things just combined and then I fell down the rabbit hole hard. And then so, I realized like I had to be a part of this because I felt like I felt like it was cool that I could help patients right in front of me on a more like person to person level, but I just felt like this was bigger where I could help more people by educating people about Bitcoin, pushing its adoption basically cuz the fix the money, fix the world kind of thing. Oh yeah. So it sounds like based on your background, you've got a diverse uh, array of interests and things that, you know, other rabbit holes that you've probably fallen down before. So that definitely, I would assume, uh, aids your ability to like research new things and find out new information. Right. So that probably helps in that sense. But yeah. when, how did, so how did you start? Like, what was your first job in this space? Was it as an analyst? Oh no, man. I worked, uh, I first worked in, uh, client services as a client mm. associate. Okay. Uh, when I first started, worked with Reed, and that was awesome because I got to learn how to like interact with the clients and like, you know, it's just a really good learning experience to be honest with you. And you like, got to I see really what got they to know the company really well. Um, you yeah, and you got to learn what Bitcoiners and customers what they what the what they were looking for, like what they were yeah. nervous about, what they what they didn't understand about the technology that maybe made them hesitant to buy more of it yeah when i was jumping on the phone with them i was just like honing my orange pilling skills it's like going to orange pilling school and just like it's great just answering questions as answering bud and by uh, doing so do you sort of see yourself as you're like you're no longer part of the um that kind of field right you're like sort of transitioning into a new sort of field in in this yeah. space right well, I just like wore a lot of hats at Swan in the beginning. <sighs> I was like the utility man for a while, um, you know, um, which was awesome. Like, I honestly love that about the startup, um, kind of help out in different areas. And then totally. I did a lot of education, uh, Bitcoin Canon, 
um, different newsletters. I just filled where I, where they need where they needed me basically, um, which was like writing writing and content, and that's what I enjoyed anyway. And so it was awesome that Brady and Corey just like said, "Yeah, go for it, man. You want to do that? Um, you know, I got to give them a lot of props." And then and then that's what I did. I just ran with it. So started being an uh, analyst, and then uh, became the lead analyst, and that's what I do now. Well, you know, say what you want about Nick Carter, but I think the real rising star is you. <laughs> you know what's sort of interesting to me is that there's these sort of rise, the rise of these analysts as being personas. Do you know yeah. what I mean? The rise yeah. of these analysts. Am I, am I, am I crazy here? Like, uh, like, like Zoltan post Zoltan. Analyst. You know, he's yeah, huge. Yeah. You know, like, uh, I love Preston Pish. He's basically an analyst. I love, him. yeah, Preston. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, and that's true. There's like these, like, little, I was thinking specifically about Dylan LeClaire or like, yeah, he's another one, Will Clemente or something like this. You know what I mean? Less so him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, yeah, Dylan's great. Um, I don't know. I, you Sa- guys, Sam you Callahan. Know. That's what I'm saying. I just do my job and then I share interesting things. Like I look at Twitter, like a diary or something and, and just like throw things I want to remember, like things I find important. Um, and it's, just, like, it's kind of a modern journalism. People. Yeah. So, a mo- Oh, a modern journalism. That's interesting. Well, yeah. The, I the, feel like yeah. a journalist, uh, some, right. like for sure. Sometimes, um, for sure. It can feel like that. Because like you're taking a piece of data, right? And you're sort of interpreting it, interpreting it, right? And yeah. spreading that message. Well, and also the good ones, building a good narrative to Interesting. go, to, to go exactly. with it, right? I mean, say what you want about Peter Zahan's opinion about Bitcoin and other things. He is ultra successful because as an, he's an, a geopolitical analyst who builds a very, very compelling narrative and he tells it very well. It's, it's, it's almost a... It's almost entertainment. It's almost like a drama when you listen to Peter Zahan or you listen to his audiobooks, right? Because he reads them himself and he does a great job of it. I didn't know he reads them himself. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, uh, uh, but look, I don't, I don't know anything about this guy other than this Bitcoin clip that I saw. Oh yeah, he's a he's one of the most you know respected and popular geopolitical analysts uh, in the world. He his like clients include. Uh, sovereign states, mega corporations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he he's uh, he worked for Strat Stratfor, which is a really uh, prominent mm-hmm. um, consultant. In the so so someone like you're able to navigate markets pretty well, I would say. Yeah, markets, but like much you know, based on the you know actions of governments, based on the demographics over long periods of time, based on weather pat, like all he like studies all this stuff and like kind of yeah. predicts how governments are going to evolve and societies are going to react and how that's going to affect markets, how it's going to affect everything. It's guru, I like, guru shit. I like, no, I liked his book. I liked how it incorporated like geography and yes, uh, yes, totally demographics, but it really made me understand kind of like the power and the, the, you know, of our geography as America, like uh, what we have here and resources and totally kind of self-sustainable, um, self-sufficient, you know? So right. yeah, it's pretty, I liked, I liked his books for sure. Um, I thought like something, I liked his older book better, like the disunited mm-hmm. nations. Um, he's a, he's a little too, uh, confident in his, uh, predictions. That does, that that does bother me a little bit. Tons of variables. Is, 
the thing is like being a geopolitical expert has become more important over time. Oh, totally. As like geopolitical tensions and, and war broke out, things like that. Um, so they're definitely in demand right now. So are macro and, analysts because they're yeah, it's like quite macro, adjacent to that. Yeah. Macro analysts. Well, there's, but they're not all good. <laughs> and, yeah. There's, I mean, there's so much to understand and, um, and there's so many things you can't understand without experience. So, you know, you just try to, uh, try to understand, try to learn from people with more experience. <laughs> that's, 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 I think that's a smart thing to do. How do you, so, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. How do you personally battle bias in your analyst or your, in your, uh, research? And when you're doing, doing that stuff, how do you combat that, you know, arguably it's probably more lucrative than ever to be biased and to just to be captured by your own audience and, and, and the incentive is to follow, you know, some, some lead down based on what you want the answer to be. How do you combat that? I mean, you try to just be aware of it and understand that almost like you can't stop it in a way. That's how I, right. You know? And so I just be aware of it. Um, and I, you know, I try to always challenge my assumptions. Like I get a lot more value listening to people that disagree with me than, than I do with people who agree with me. Agreed. And over time I've learned that, that like I've just, I, I'll listen to somebody who doesn't like Bitcoin a lot. And um, sometimes I'll be like, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm like, that's a dumb thing you just said. But there's other times where I learn a lot. That's just a different perspective and challenge my own assumptions all the time. And then in my uh, own writing, I try to, share both sides you know a little bit like if it makes sense to me like i let them know about where risks you know it's not always roses and stuff like that because you, you just got to be objective and you can't uh, it's not interesting to just say yeah this is great all the time like right. it's not being honest uh so you just try to write like honestly that there's you know this is still um you know it's it's still a, a speculative investment in a way. So, you know, we're betting on this protocol to to do wonders, and and I believe it can because it's just great tech and it's just amazing. But right, um, it's still going to be volatile and things like that. So, yeah, yeah that's how I, that's how I view it, man. That's how I fix those biases as much as I can. I just did it with like CBDC research because I went down the survey and I read all these comments, and basically I just did like was this to get a sentiment of all the public comments in response to the Fed CBDC paper. And I read each one and it was just like, is this good or against CBDCs or is this pro CBDC? Like generally, yay or nay? What is this comment? And I tried to be aware of my bias that I'm going to like want these to be negative, I think. And so what I considered a pro CBDC comment was like anything that like even remotely said, this is good. If they, they didn't say outright oppose it, or they didn't like, um, if they just said like, Hey, we could do this. I consider that a pro CBDC comment. And so I just tried to like, you know, I don't know, lowball it, I guess, like as much as right. I can towards against my own biases, or I guess maybe that's the word, but, <laughs> but yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think bias is natural. We naturally have to buy, have bias. I, mean, I don't think you sure. can avoid it. Uh, so you mentioned this little story right there. Uh, we were going through all these comments for CBDC and I've also like read some of your, uh, threads or some of your research. And, uh, 
your, your when you research, you read like everything. It seems like you read everything. You're like, I went through everything, like read all these reports, read all these filings. And then you're going through all these little details, um, just like reading every comment on a government survey about CBDC. So, so my point is you're very detail-oriented and you, you read all of the information that's available to you. And I don't, some, you know, that's a, not a lot of these uh, popular influencers necessarily do stuff like that. But when it comes to Bitcoin, I assume that you researched it the same way. So yeah. what, um, what is like a small detail or something that you read or found that you find particularly fascinating about Bitcoin? I mean, the, the protocol mining, the culture, anything that uh, you, you think might be overlooked or might be kind of underrated. Um, yeah. Which is kind of a tough I question mean, to put I you on the spot the difficulty with, adjustment. But... I think the difficulty adjustment is, it's pretty in the, in the weeds. Totally. I, guess. Yes. I mean, a lot of people know what it is and stuff, but it really um, is like amazing what that is. Um, for, for me, that was the kind of that light bulb where I was like, oh, whoa this, this is legit. Like this is like, I was always like kind of pro Bitcoin. Like this seems pretty like a great technology. It's cool. It's uncensorable. Yeah. But then it, then the difficulty, I read about the difficulty adjustment and that's what just sent me spiraling down. Like, wow, Satoshi, holy shit. Yeah. That's like <laughs> Satoshi's uh, real contribution. Right. So what, 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 what part of the difficulty adjustment was it for you to say? Well, it kind of like uh, what he's asking is, can you explain the difficulty adjustment to him? Because he doesn't know what we're talking about. That's thank you. That's exactly what I need you to tell me. <laughs> well, <laughs> just the difficulty kidding. adjustment. I like the difficulty adjustment for like it being a way to keep everyone on time. So keeps blocks roughly around ten minutes, um, which is important for coordination of a distributed network, or hmm. you know. And so you have different participants that could get in sync with another and be not know who each other was because it's just like, I like to think of it as like a meat grinder. So like, you know, every 10 minutes it has to be on sync and then it's on time. And that's when you get like final settlement every 10 minutes. And um, the difficulty adjustment is really important because it fluctuates with uh, the hash rate. And so when it goes up or down, the difficulty adjustment adjusts so that blocks will roughly go every 10 minutes or, you know, every, you know, 2016 uh at 2016 uh blocks so it's pretty uh amazing it's like solved uh time like decentralized it's that's a, just a decentralized clock which is it's a it's a digital metronome yeah it's a digital mm, very metronome. nice uh it's I, something like so soothing when you understand that uh and i just think difficult just difficulty adjustment solve that It'll, it solves for coordination of uh, you know distributed um nodes um, it's pretty amazing. I, I think you put it so nicely when you said you said final settlement every ten minutes. It just sounds so like the the concept of that is is crazy for me. Now that I think about it, yeah, and that's like yeah. There's a couple of great articles. Ah oh, man, I can't remember this one. I think it's called Bitcoin is a decentralized clock. There's an article out there that's amazing. Um, and then um, obviously Gigi's Bitcoin is time is, is another classic and. We love yeah. we love to talk about time and in that article and some of the uh, <laughs> some of the uh, inspiration for that article. 
on this show. So <laughs> yeah, man, GG's, uh, that's a, that's an all timer. I still need to get to this fucking article, man. I still have not gotten to the GG. And then, and then you got to read Carlo Ravelli where he gets some of that <laughs> fucking inspiration. Carlo, you and fucking Carlo. Car- <laughs> oh, yeah, I dude. have this book. I still haven't finished again. I haven't started it basically. <laughs> but, okay. uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you mentioned you don't like central banks and, but you study central banks. So what's, uh, I think, you know, the bank of international settlement, right. They just said that, uh, banks can keep a certain percentage of, you know, digital assets, Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, maybe it was in response to that or something else you said, like BIS is not our friends. What's, yeah. uh, what did you mean by that? Can you tell people listening, like, some of the nefarious stuff that these banks like BIS are behind. Well, it's just important to know that the BIS, first of all, is protected by international treaty and they're in uh, Basel, Switzerland. And uh, so they kind of function over sovereign governments and, you know, any, there's no democratic process around them or, or anything. Um, and so they're, we work above the law and they're a bunch of unelected central bankers and they they're kind of in charge of like large settlements between central banks and and they do banking services for for all the central banks so they're the central bank of central banks uh but the real real thing that they are uh today specifically in these rapidly changing times as they're being disrupted by technologies they're getting uh desperate and they're realizing that they're actually going to have to build their own technology uh to stay in the game to with the competition from the private sector, whether that's fintech or Bitcoin, private stable coins, um, they're kind of like losing market share rapidly in in digital payments and medium of exchange. So the Biz of Inter- uh, the Bank of International Settlements started this thing called the Biz Innovation Hub in 2019, uh, which is they had like a mission and they added like a new mandate or or goal or something which was create our own technology and start like bringing the innovation, which is interesting because most innovation comes from the private sector, not the public sector, not top down uh, because the private sector knows what the user wants because it's interacting with consumers. Um, so they provide what they meet the marketplace needs, uh, not the public sector. who doesn't know shit. Um, so they just come in and they're planning to lay down their own central bank digital currency system and it all comes down from the Bank of International Settlements, which is really a collection of central bankers around the world. And one of their main goals is uh, to uh, bring about collaboration between central banks. That's that's what the point of one of the main goals of the Bank of International Settlements is, is to uh, promote collaboration. And so uh, they're the ones driving the entire global CBDC system. They're the ones designing it. They're the one who's doing all the research that then gets uh, referenced in all the central bank research. That's all sharing. Let me interrupt you for a second before you continue. Do they promote collaboration or do they coerce collaboration? Do you think would be a better um... promote? I think they're they're more, you know, I just, there's this, I forgot what book it was, but there's one that it's just like how central bankers and members of high finance, they, they don't feel like, um, allegiance to their home countries, you know, or like 
they don't they they think they're in this noble quest for financial stability and they and to promote like uh growth economic growth and financial stability there's noble quest with their fellow central bankers and members of high finance you know people below us won't understand how the good things we're doing for them uh we're on this noble quest and they only have allegiance to other central bankers and members of high finance um and that's how they operate uh, that's part of why they go to the biz behind closed doors because they can operate outside the oversight of, say, politicians or the media or the public. So that's how I read it. Gotcha. All right. I had a question about this. This made me think about this sort of uh, visual of is the Fed the king or is the Fed the dragon? The well, was I was no, I was gonna, I was gonna, <laughs> that's I was gonna how say, I derail a conversation. No, 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 I, I no, like that. I actually like that question. I do too. And I was just thinking about the same thing, so I'll try to maybe reword it a little better. Thank you. I'll interpret, if you will. Uh, <laughs> it's is it is it that you know, you, you said they, they feel like they're above it, they have no uh, national loyalty, right? It's it's almost as if yeah. that they they let everybody else pretend the politicians, the presidents, the Kings, they let them, they let them play and they're sit, they're rising above it all. And they're like, okay, you guys say what you want, but you still have to come to us when you need to actually do it. So we're in charge. They definitely influence policy and they have since like the fifties or sixties, or that's when they really started to do that. Um, where they started to whisper in the ears of policymakers and start to, you know, their plans started to show up in the legislation and in our realities, but they all start, you know, in the minds of, of these central bankers. You can see it in their papers and, and research. Um, so yeah, the king and the dragon, like it's a good question. I don't, Basically, is it, is it the ruler or is it the, this monster no, that is owned by the ruler? Well, the fed has power. I mean, cause they have the, the, uh, reserve currency so that is that is like a unique power but maybe that's like breathing fire like a dragon <laughs> um right. and there is yeah there's this you know international financial institutions and global right. financial system that kind of you know has to by nature be bigger than any one government or central bank to function and right. so there is this like yeah there's this king dynamic but there is a governance structure within these institutions and the fed does have you know a prominent role and leadership roles throughout these subcommittees and the fed officials Leo brainerd and jerome powell and uh yeah yeah mike to answer your question it, you're right it is both because you know the dragon knows that it can just turn around and incinerate the king <laughs> but they they work together you know yeah it's possible you know the fed uh, the fed and the biz didn't don't like each other they were for a long now they do they didn't for a long time true it's from world war ii all the way up into the 90s was when the the federal uh reserve finally like did, what was maybe had a board did, member wait wait did, did, did Kaysen come on here and tell us that the where they took all the melted Jews' teeth and put it all the gold the, and they stored the, the gold 
and the Nazi story, and then that became the the biz. Yeah, still in their vaults. Like that's the goal. <laughs> that's the truth of it. I mean, that's the hard truth. <laughs> oh my and they're, god! And, and they're worried about and they're worried about non fungible Bitcoin because of privacy and KYC. <laughs> they literally have Jews. Yeah, I mean, it's Jews wild. gold in the vaults of Switzerland, <laughs> and it's it's fungible. I mean, it's so bad. I. They didn't even, they got exposed for that. They didn't even complain in that, that secret was all the way to the nineties. And then they, uh, got caught basically. And then they had to come clean and then they, they, you know, promised to be more transparent after. <laughs> oh my God. So, and that be, that's like in Switzerland, you're saying, cause I'm, I'm just learning all this right now. You're like a wealth of information here, Sam. So the business in, now in, actually it's on the it's on the tether gold uh, chain now. So <laughs> like, the stable coin. Oh yeah, the stable coin, man. No, I'm just thinking about this like play, Switzerland is always known as this neutral place, right? As in, and I was thinking, yeah, is it neutral well, because of yeah? The are they there? Are they there because of well, the biz loves to act like they're neutral, so it kind of plays in their favor. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Maybe yeah, there's, there's a relationship there. Of yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I if had, you look at the, who they give loans to, there has been instances throughout history where you can clearly see they're like inherently a political organization, and yet they act like they're neutral. But it's like yeah, I mean, to be that's rich so basically they're in charge of giving out loans to the rest of the the world. Mm -hmm. No, and they're also no. that's where powerful people have their bank accounts because they don't answer subpoena requests from other governments to you know give out that information unless it's you know i don't i with the biz and stuff i think it's it's pretty much just institutions and mm -hmm. central banks yeah right but yeah but i mean <laughs> yeah they don't <laughs> no. isn't it isn't it crazy how many aspects of things you learn after you get into bitcoin Oh yeah, dude. Because yeah. there's so many things about this whole world that I didn't even think about before I got into Bitcoin. The more you know. There you go. Sorry. It's, it's never it's moments. never ending too. There's no bottom. Right. I tried to find it. It's not there. Well, I just learned something new just now because of this Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> so the controversy today, or you know, this week especially, is uh ordinals what do you uh what do you know about this and what do you think about it honestly not enough i've been pretty busy this week and i haven't had time to really dig in deeply to it i mean i know i all i can say is that like i i think inherent like i immediately my knee-jerk reaction is just like i hate any kind of censorship or telling anybody if they are they doing any kind of valid transactions they can interact with bitcoin however they want right and uh, okay. within yeah. the rules of the protocol. Um, and so that's my knee-jerk reaction. Uh, but I know it's like a nuanced topic. And so I don't really... <laughs> I'm going to learn a lot a lot about it um, on Friday when I'm hosting Cafe Bitcoin and Pierre is going to be there. And Pierre has a very strong opinion. Towards, yes, he does. You know, this is spam. And this is, you know, you know, make fees more expensive uh, for it to be used as a you know, monetary system which is one uh, take. And then the other take is kind of the one I just said, where it's like, okay, but. Yeah, this is, uh, this is interesting. So 
for those who don't know it quite what it is, ordinals are, is a numbering scheme uh, ultimately, and it is used to track individual sats because based on the time that they were mined and then as they were spent, the input output, uh, you can track that in a sequential uh, number. So you can say this sat specifically, uh, and you can track that no matter where it goes. Um, so this ordinals protocol makes it possible through uh, the taproot soft fork, um, which there's a loophole there that lets you put, you know, basically an infinite amount of information into an opcode uh, on a transaction up to the four megabyte uh, limit on the block. And with these ordinals, you can attach this information to, you know, a bunch of different sats on these transactions. Right. And you can literally attach a digital file, uh, a JPEG, uh, an HTML file, a few other small files. Um, but basically you can put anything you want. And it's literally, it's not a, it's not a link to something like on YouTube or uh, Flickr or one of those, you know, Imgur that you know, it's like on an Ethereum NFT, for example, this is literally living on the, on the blockchain uh, and in every node. So the problem would be that they would just spam a shitload of these transactions to spend all these NFTs um, and it would clog up the, the blockchain. It would make the, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, yeah unusable and the memory block, like bloat and, and some people think that that's good for the miners because uh, the transaction fees are going to skyrocket as a result. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the fees, the fee, um, there's so much uh, misunderstanding around Bitcoin's fees in mm -hmm. the market in general, I feel like. Um, I don't even know, understand those really well either. Yeah. I, I mean, like, so... It's like the, I hate the immediate FUD where it's like Bitcoin's long-term security and the fees are too low. Um, but like I can remember not long ago when the FUD was the fees were too high. And to me, it's just a sign that Bitcoin is scaling mm -hmm. and that there isn't kind of censorship or spam going on. This was there's a great report with uh, Joe Burnett and Pierre wrote it mm -hmm. um, on transaction fees, which I think everyone should read. It's a good read. Um, but the, it's basically like this is the the cycle that they argue is uh, Bitcoin um, has trouble scaling. So we had really high fees and, and congestion in the run up of 2017. And then improvements like batch transactions and SegWit um, helped improve Bitcoin scalability. And then the lightning enabled the lightning network and things. So then, you know, that led to <laughs> um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. But <laughs> I forgot what Batch, I was talking about. Oh, so, good. Yeah. So uh no, I, I I follow where you're going with that. Um and here's my take on this thing after I've been thinking about it, especially after I ate an edible. And so it's it's really cooking <laughs> up there. <laughs> but I think that the the controversy and Pierre's he's been just tweeting like crazy from Bitcoin is savings uh about this and he's he's very upset. He 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 wants to change the rules. But I think that the market will sort itself out. It, if these things become, if the transaction becomes so expensive, it's, it's just not going to be cost efficient for people to be using this. And it's, it's this meme attack that people are kind of doing, I think, to just troll Bitcoiners right now. I think there was like almost the biggest block ever was mined earlier today. It was like 3.96 megabytes uh, and the, they didn't pay a single fee. But 
uh, speculation is that they either paid an OTC fee because they knew miners, they knew a mining pool, and they're doing this mm. just to they're doing this just to troll us. But uh, I think in the long term, this this works out, works itself out in the market, and it's ordinals either be figure out something that's very valuable, or they'll do, it won't be that relevant a year from now. But I saw a tweet yeah. today. Yeah, from, it's definitely from, it's been fun to watch. Yeah, and I, um, I can't wait to learn more about it on Friday because uh, uh, it's going to uh, be an interesting discussion and gonna re- have some time to finally read about it over the weekend so it'll be good yeah i saw so i saw a tweet from chomer tonight yesterday my opinion of inscriptions which are the result of how or what you make on the sat to have the file the re- my opinion of inscriptions with that they were spam today i think they represent the first time any individual can publish a significant amount of content no adversary can ever destroy who knows what tomorrow may bring and it got well, me thinking about like China's got the, the red wall, the, the firewall, uh, information, very hard to get in and out of there on the internet, but Bitcoin is still very popular in China. There's still tons of miners in China. There's still tons of people using it there. So it's like this network that can penetrate the giant red firewall of China and get perfectly valid, um, legitimate information in and out that, you know, is not tampered with, you know, is, 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 is real. So now with this inscriptions possibility, you can get documents, you can get data, you can get uh, PDFs, uh, things like that, in and out of places firewalled like China. And what kind of value could that provide to like get this uncensored? I mean, we just went through the past few years where they're censoring all kinds of legitimate medical information and, and other information that could have affected people's lives differently. Well, now, if you've got that, you can get it anywhere in and out. can't be censored. Yeah, no. This whole idea has always fascinated me. Like, the idea of incorruptible data and how the base layer would enable that one day. I always thought it would kind of happen on different layers. But, you know, is it best if that's happening at the base layer? I, you know, I've, because the use case for that, I mean, it's really interesting too with like security footage, like untamperable uh, security footage and things like that, where you could basically prevent a lot of fraud uh, from happening, like really widespread. Like that would be a solution if it scaled. And then, you know, would it crowd out Bitcoin's original use case of, uh, you know, as a monetary system or payment system or money. Um, I don't know, like that shouldn't happen. Like, so like that use case would dominate, right? Like should dominate. Well, I mean, potentially it it, it would only be, it would only be the most valuable information. It wouldn't be pet rocks and things like that. So I think that for the most part, it would be used as money, but very valuable information would be protected by that money. And in, in, in a way that, only, that yeah. yeah, yeah, in the in a way only a digital piece of information like that could be protected by money. It is the truth chain, the truth chain. So, right. it's uh, we'll see. It's I'm a, not a, I think one day it's something like that is going to exist. Whether that's going to be this current thing that's happening right now, like I don't know. Um, right. But I do think Bitcoin will enable something like that one day. Yeah. I'm not promoting NFTs, by the way, especially on Bitcoin, but no, but you know, what I said could be a kind of mic or mic stuff. It's thank you. 
uh, it, it makes me think that there's this, uh, this crazy connection that you talked about, how you can tie an infinite amount of information to one sat and get it in and out of China. This like blew my mind, this kind of idea. I didn't, an, infinite, I to, an infinite amount of information up to up to the block limit, but yeah, up to the yeah. block limit, right? But you could, I mean, you could send it out in like the Twitter files could have been released in in blocks, right? Like the next, I see 10, you're saying, yes. the next ten blocks will include this information. The government <coughs> try to kill us if we release you know? hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I, like I said, man, I'm excited to uh, learn about it. Friday, happy Bitcoin. I, I don't even know if they've been, they've probably been talking about it all week on Cafe Bitcoin. Oh, that's all Twitter's been talking about. I'm sure they have. I'm sure there's been a lot of respectful engagement in Twitter spaces this week. <laughs> I, I have a, a question that I wanted to ask, not to derail something, but I had a question I wanted to ask because I thought about it tonight. Uh, and the question, unless someone else has, has something else to follow up with. Go ahead. Um, Bitcoin basically eliminates banks, right? So the banking system becomes just Bitcoin itself in a way. And there's services attached like Swan to Bitcoin as, as your sort of pseudo bank in a kind of sense, or your, your, it's like your interaction between Bitcoin, right? What it made me think of is like, um, what does that do to businesses? What does it, what does it do to businesses now that they don't have to interact with a bank? Yeah, I mean, it's like I've said before, like because of Lightning, you can be anywhere in the world and all you need is a Raspberry Pi or a laptop and internet connection and a little bit of JavaScript or some other coding skills and you're your business. You don't need to open a bank account. You don't need to get a LLC. You, you just accept sats from anywhere in the world, from anybody in the world for your services. It, that's your business does allow you to be your own bank. Yeah. There's the idea that there's going to be Bitcoin banks. Like people will still want, you know, to take out a Bitcoin back loan, essentially, or something like that. I don't know. I don't know how there's It'll a change it. theories around it. And that's what Hal Finney, you know, that's what Hal Finney thought was going to happen. It's like proof of reserves with different levels of risks uh, based on like the percentage of the <coughs> reserves. I was... I was thinking more in the sense of, yeah. of like if, if you interact only with Bitcoin <coughs> in your business and you're no longer, you eliminate that entire side of this sort of debt system that we've been living on. Um, I, want, I just wonder how that's going to allow businesses, businesses in the future to flourish in a way because now they can sort of focus on what they really want to do as, as opposed to all the stuff that you know, is on their backs, I guess. I don't know where I'm going with this, guys. Come on. Wait, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> on to I, you. Like, if, if you had savings, like, you mean, like, if you're saving in sound money, I mean, you'll just, ideally, the, 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 like, utopian vision is, like, people would be able to focus on what they want in life and, and focus on arts and and anything they want and then you're in this like new renaissance period basically but it wouldn't mean like work would stop like people would just be able to focus more on what it would they just want. change it would be less financialization in the in the economy basically a lot of zombie companies a lot of zombie companies a lot of less yeah. shitty startups yeah it'd be more sustainable 
that's Here's a big a, transformation. It, it, that's that's a good question. It's kind of hard to imagine that. It seems like too far in the future. But what I think is a little bit more yeah. close to reality and more close to what we could maybe ask a question about is how do, how does CBDCs change commercial private banking? Because I wonder if CBDCs are if the bankers are more afraid of CBDCs and more an enemy of CBDCs than even the people might be because this might, because CBDCs, depending on how they're implemented, could just destroy commercial banking altogether. And it's, it's all central banking. Oh yeah. They, uh, they hate it, dude. Yeah. They all hate it. I, like I, when I was reading the comments, there's, there's a lot of different banks and banking organizations like the American bankers association and the Texas Bankers Association and JP Morgan Chase and uh, HSBC, they all wrote in and they're all like, no, nah. <laughs> they're like, we don't want this. Like, no. Nope. Basically, they all repeated the same thing, which is the uh, risks far outweigh any perceived benefits. Um, Interesting. And it's because it would drain them of potentially drain them of their cheapest, like the cheapest uh, source of funding which is customer deposits. The idea being that they would want to go to a CBDC money because it doesn't have uh, uh, liquidity risk or default risk because a central bank can just print money and won't ever go under technically. You know what I mean? Um, so people would choose to hold their money in those CBDCs instead of the banking deposits. And so that would be one of their, the bank's cheapest source of funding and that would potentially harm the economy because the banks wouldn't lend out as much money or they would uh, have to get more expensive sources of funding and that would uh, squeeze into their profit margins. And so um, and so the central banks know this. And so they want to put like limits and caps on the central bank digital currencies so that people would prevent them from you know, putting all their deposits in at the same time and just draining these banks. So they're like, hey, we'll put a like a $5,000 limit or something. That's what they'll say, 5,000 or 3,000. And it only like take, you know, X amount of money from these deposits. But these banks came back and they're like, even if it's a 3,000 limit or, or five, uh, $5,000 limit on the CBDC, and that's all that happened and it flowed in there like you guys think it will, it would still drain us of like trillions of dollars. And the thing is, it would actually bankrupt the community banks, the smaller banks who are uh, actually, you know, important to these rural com communities as, you know, financial services. Um, they don't have as, you know, they're crucial. They right. send up a ton of small business loans, a percentage of the small business loans in our economy comes out of these smaller community banks and um, as well as farmers, agriculture, uh, mostly comes from community banks. That's how they get their financing. And so it would bankrupt these these community banks. Um, so it actually hurt financial inclusion. That's the thing. Uh, everything they think it does well, it does worse. It makes everything worse. And it's and there's no perceived uh, benefit. I agree with the banks. Like, it's so crazy. I, I agree with the banks. Um, but that's it's the truth of it. And, and so... It's hard for me to see a retail U.S. retail CBDC coming around anytime soon. A wholesale CBDC is another conversation, um, and I'm mostly talking about a retail CBDC in the yeah. scenario of the the USDC non-commercial bank deposits. Yeah. Um, and one other effect of like a, a cap, like three thousand, five thousand dollar limit, 
would be that that would disproportionately go or affect the poorest people in America who maybe only have three or four thousand dollars of money to their name or liquidity to their name. And that would just put more control over uh, just a, a growing mass of the population. Yeah, basically. The least. That's the thing. They oh, have yeah. more surveillance and control. And when you're reading through these comments, it's mostly that's the main concern in yeah. general. And um, it's a threat to privacy. It can lead to tyranny. It's yeah. surveillance uh, tech, um, which it is. I mean, so it was kind of inspiring reading all those comments from just, you know, it would be like, like, and from Maine, 34. <laughs> or like Steve from Nebraska. I'd be like, yeah, Steve. Like, hell yeah, man. You got it. And, when and you there said, are these people who are pro CBDC and I'm and I'm just like, oh man, you're so lost. Cause like the pro CBDC arguments, they just kind of fall apart. Cause I tracked them. I was like, what are what what are the pro CBDC? It's like most of it is like fear. Like they're like, we'll fall behind. We'll fall, we're gonna fall behind China. And um, that's dumb too. Like that's just yeah. like straight fear that you, you feel like you have to do what they're doing. We should actually be grateful that they are going down the path of a CBDC because the, the technology is dumb. Like you don't, they want centralized control and they're trying to apply uh blockchain technology, a permission blockchain that's inefficient. Um, it's so we stupid. Just let them go ahead with it. And it's going to suck for, um, they'll, they'll fall behind because they want to adopt Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> it's like America would have to adopt Bitcoin and then they'll really fall behind if they want to go play around with their little CBDCs over there. So it's funny that you said like, uh, I'm agreeing with the banks. Like this is the one, one of those situations where it feels like the enemy of my enemy is my friend and it got oh, CBDCs. It's like, all right, I'll, I'll stand next to you, Jamie, Jamie diamond. As soon as yeah, this when is, I was over, as soon as this is over, I'm fighting you. JP Morgan's was, I was like, God damn, this one's kind of good. <laughs> it's like the, yeah, it's like the Northern kind of Alliance in job. Afghanistan. Yeah. All those dudes fought against the Taliban and then they're like, all right, once this is over, I'm killing you. <laughs> yeah. But then Jamie Diamond turned around and he's like, yeah, but I got JP Morgan coin. <laughs> or yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Like, that's not, okay. That's not good either. Um, it's just, you know. It makes me you just, I plot it out. Like you, you see how El Salvador is adopting Bitcoin or uh, what's the, the country in Africa adopting Bitcoin? Central African Republic. Central African Republic adopting Bitcoin. And you start to see like which currencies, if you're going to adopt a CBDC or a BTC, you know, which one is, it just seems like every one of these cultures is going to have to adopt one of the, one or the other. Yeah. I think they're probably going to happen at the same time. Uh, and one, one is going to prove itself over time and one is going to fall apart. It's just like communism and capitalism, this Cold War. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, right. It's, kind of, it's, it's a new version of that kind of tyranny wow, versus nice connection the, the markets, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, yeah, that's great. That's good. S Sam, I got to ask you this question before uh, if we do end up going. I, I don't want to go on this note. I want to ask you this question because I ask everyone this question, or Dan does, and that is, uh, what aspect of Bitcoin? Do you find yourself into the most like how did it get what are you thinking about the most right now well hmm. i i always liked it as just like a tool for freedom and and you know individualism and um 
yeah, that's that's the most exciting thing, I think, is just allowing people to send value without permission, censorship resistance, um, in a world that's continually going down the path of capital controls and censorship and uh debasement. So that's you know, the solution to the problem. And that's always what fascinated me the most, I would say. Um yeah. Fighting yeah. censorship for sure. Yeah, for sure. Like yeah, I mean, it's a, Bitcoin's just like a tool for freedom, it's, and uh, it's, that's that's the most important part. And that's and like that's you said, focus on. Like you said, it like supports individualism. It's like the best tool to uh, support individualism, but still in a collaborative way, where people are still keeping their incentives aligned, so they can kind of work together. You got the community, the collective. It's like the yin and the yang. It's like it creates the the right balance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, man. It's the yeah, that's that's by far the most important part. <laughs> I mean, not even close. That's what I like to focus on. And I just see central banks and CBDCs as kind of the opposite of that. And so I like to focus on that as well to just understand what they're doing over there. I nice. just I just want to keep an eye on them, you know. I agree. Sam Callahan, it was great to have you on high hash rate. I've been <laughs> Wanted to get you on here for a while. I'm glad we finally yeah, did. Uh, Swan Signal Live is coming out every week now. Do you want to it's get? It's not some... live though. It's just. Oh, it's not live anymore. Yeah. No. Yeah. We got okay. we got oceans over here making it. You know. That's right. That's right. Okay. Post production. Yeah, Mike, you're off. Your mic's off again. Yeah. yeah that was, uh, I just want to say that was a great show. Well done on that uh, first round. Thanks, yeah. bro. So check that out. Uh, and Sam, where what else uh have you got, or that you might want to share? Let people know where they can find Shill it, Sam. Shill it. Shill it. Like you can follow our monthly newsletter that goes out, which is great. It goes out to like a lot of people. <laughs> 250,000 or something like that. Nice. Uh, you can check that out. Check out the Daily Bitcoiner. Um, written by Corey, sharing great pieces of content. Uh, the blog is great. Swan Signal. Um, get a lot of content there. Check out the Bitcoin Canon. You can learn a lot there. Um, Yo, bro, you're making a lot of content, though. Hell yeah. I'm not making all. It's a, it's a team effort. Um, right. Yeah. No. You're going to be on hard money uh, soon? Hard money. Uh, yeah. Hard money is amazing, too, man. No, you're going to be on hard money soon? Yeah. I'm going on um, Friday for a little macro update. It's been a big macro week. There's been a... Nice earnings fomc uh the labor data comes out friday you know all that all that silly stuff but uh yeah so we're doing a little macro update nice we'll make sure to tune into that and you know final thought two hundred seventy-five thousand. that's like it's pretty good that's like the it's like the whole population of toledo ohio that's like you know, <laughs> for what the monthly newsletter yeah yeah, yeah. that's a lot of I people think, i, I think it's 250 they have an nice zoo yeah, so yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, dude, yeah. I mean, that's like Brandon Quidum. There I mean, a lot of people have, have contributed to building that to what that is. And uh yeah, big shout out to BQ. All right, kids. Good night. Well no, I'm just gonna stop recording. Thanks again for listening to the High Hash Rate Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at High Hash Rate, or you can hit up Dan at Heartland Bitcoin, H-R-T-L-N-D Bitcoin, or myself, Mike, 
at RundanceBitcoin. That's all one word, RundanceBitcoin. If you're a fellow pleb or you just want to shoot the shit with two high Bitcoiners, reach out to us. Holy Toledo!